what we saw is that example after example of individual who served a mass amount of time in, in returning to society, they heavily lean on their family, their friends, and their significant others. Mm-hmm. If that's the case, then the state should be providing resources to their family, friends, significant others, yeah. and also other former, the incarcerated people, other former lifers. Hi, I'm Brittany, and this is For Colored Nerds, the weekly show where we peel back the layers of Black culture we rarely discuss in mixed company. Today on the show, Eric interviews one of our friends from college, journalist and podcast host Pendarvis Harshaw, as well as filmmaker Brandon Tausick about a moving multimedia project they created about life after incarceration called Facing Life. Through the words and images of Facing Life, which also ran in the LA Times, we see the everyday struggles of many formerly incarcerated people, like adjusting to smartphones and re-embracing their personal style. But we also learn of their bigger hurdles, like the lack of access to adequate healthcare and difficulties finding stable employment. After the break, you'll meet Pendarvis and Brandon, and you'll hear the stories of some of the unforgettable people who have shared their experiences navigating an impossible system. So don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. There are over 75 million monthly Tubi viewers. That's more people than there are influencers on the internet which means Tubi is more popular than sponsored posts for digestive enzymes and high-coverage foundation. More popular than soft-launching your boyfriend. More popular than making boomers explode with rage when you tell them how much you make on a single post. Tubi, it's more popular than influencers. See you in there. Life is a highway. And on it, there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. So before we get into the interview, I want to give a bit more background about this project. Facing Life is an online documentary series that follows the lives of eight formerly incarcerated Californians as they acclimate to life outside of prison. Through written profiles by Pendarvis and arresting photos, videos, and cinemagraphs by Brandon, we're able to see the triumphs of life after prison, like with a recently released man named Treviel. You know, I still have the euphoria, you know, of being free. I still, you know, I can get up in the middle of the night and drive to the store or just go out and open the door and walk outside at one, two o'clock in the morning. We're also privy to the hardships that many formerly incarcerated people face as they build new lives outside of prison, like dealing with social anxiety or a lack of adequate housing. Facing Life is a timely and important project depicting a struggle many Americans face today, and we're lucky to have Pendarvis and Brandon here on the show to talk about it. If you want to learn more about this project or any of the people mentioned in this episode, visit facing.life to see all eight portraits. Okay, so I'll let you get into the interview, but make sure to stay tuned until the end of this episode for a very big announcement about our very own Eric Eddings. And Darvis, Brandon, welcome to For Color Nerds. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Thanks for having. So I want to jump into the project you two created, Facing Life. Was there a moment when you two realized that this was the project that you kind of wanted to create? Like, how do, how do we get here? 
how did we get here? It started with the email. <laughs> it started with the email, probably a text message, you know, real simple. Like, hey, what you up to? Brandon and I have known each other in, in creative circles for about a dozen years. Very well-known photographer. So I've been following his work for a while. And he knew about me and the writing that I was doing about arts and culture in the Bay Area. And we wanted to combine forces. And um, we got word about what the Pulitzer Center was doing in terms of funding projects that take a look at mass incarceration in the United States. We decided to put our heads together. They don't assist you in any way in making the hmm. project. So, you know, without having the, the backing of a publication to get us access to prisons, that was basically off the shelf. So wow. that's when we kind of pivoted to reentry. We chose that because in working in arts and culture, specifically like working inside of prisons, I knew that California was at this point where we had suffered from mass incarceration for a couple of decades and the state was positioning itself to be the leader of like decarceration or depopulating the amount of people within prisons. Um, and so you have this mass exodus of a lot of people getting out of prison. My question yeah. was like, who's there to help them as they reenter society? Yeah. And not, not only a lot of people, but a lot of lifers. So mm. people, you know, who were, were sentenced to life with or without the possibility of parole. A lot of people that serve 20, 30, 40 years, a lot of people in the later stages of their lives. So that's the population that we, we focus on with facing life. Tell me a little bit about how you pulled this off. Cause like, I actually didn't, didn't realize that like you not being able to use kind of like the Pulitzer name, I would have thought that would have opened some doors, but it sounds like y'all really had to kind of get scrappy and get in there yourself. This is such a personal thing. Like how did you build that rapport, even find folks, you know, if there, if there's this mass exodus. So again, working in that space, I was familiar with a lot of organizations, nonprofits who work with formerly incarcerated people impacted by the system. So we reached out to them and told them about this project. And, you know, of course, we mentioned that the Pulitzer Center is backing us. But again, Brandon and I, we didn't have a publication, so we couldn't say, like, this will be published in the L.A. Times, which it was. But at the time, we didn't know that. So we reached out to these organizations. And of course, the organizations want to be highlighted in the most benevolent way possible. They want to shine. So they're like check out our superstar person who was a political prisoner and now they're publishing books and hosting podcasts. And we're like, yeah, that's not everybody's story. We want yeah. the like middle of the road person who served a lot of time, got out, and now they're just trying to get on their feet, take care of their family and like go home. And so we hit the pavement and um, yeah. being in the black community, I know a lot of folks who have like uncles or aunties who served time and got back out. So I would just, you know, have conversations about it. And then uh, Brendan took it upon himself to like, show up at different organizations, meetings. We met with like parole officers and judges and, you know, kind of people all throughout the spectrum of the justice system. Yeah. Yeah. It, it took a really long time it, during that, that first kind of six months, you know, some, some of our, our eight participants, we met pretty quickly, but then some, you know, it took six plus months to find them um, wow. because, you know, this is a, a California story. So we needed people all over California, which is a big state. So we need yeah. people in Northern, Central, Southern California. And we really took that kind of like initial time on the project to, you know, meeting with these organizations and meeting with, with formerly incarcerated people, even if we weren't going to profile them, just to also learn to get our bearings in the space, which neither of us were like incredibly familiar with. Everything from the ballot measures and laws and the policy work that you know, allowed for these people to be released to what they get released to structurally. Terminology was what got Terminology. Me. Terminology was like, okay, crash course. Even the term like a returning citizen, yeah. you know, like we were like, yeah, we want to focus on returning citizens. And they were like, yeah, not everybody's a citizen. So what are you talking mm. about? Like, wow. Uh, oh, yeah, good point. People, because we're talking about people 
who are yeah. formerly incarcerated. So let's put people first and then put formerly incarcerated to describe their identity, past identity. This is not who they are. Talk to me a bit about like building rapport. You know, like, again, I want to come back. Like, this is, you got people to be pretty pretty open and honest about some of the hardest moments that they experience in their life, some of the harm that they've caused, how they've tried to, like, push through that, and trying to rebuild after something so devastating as being incarcerated. How did you create the comfort necessary to get those personal stories? It was different for each individual, and I think identity plays a huge part in it. Myself, Black man, Brandon white man. Um, and so we're talking to eight individuals, three of them are women and of different people of different races, different locations. And so being able to identify with different aspects of their identity really helped to initially engage. Um, so a person like Fahim from Richmond, a black man, real quick connection makes sense. And he's very athletic and works out a lot. Brandon can connect on that. You know, it's like yeah. little aspects of just human connection, like you would make friends on any playground, right? Yeah. Um, but then to get past certain barriers. So I, the first person that comes to mind is Myra Burns. By myself, like I said, there's no place that I can get an apartment. I can't even rent a room at the prices that rent is in the city. But then nobody's trying to help me. Nobody's trying to help me find a place to stay. The uh, Section 8 waiting list is ridiculous. It's anywhere from five to 10 years. Uh, low income. Myra's story, like many women involved in the prison system, ties into a guy, for sure. But even before her involvement in the prison system, a lot of her childhood traumas come from involvement with men in one way or another. It involves, you know, everything from, from rape to um, just lies and being misled and the development of distrust and yeah she shared she's pretty open about it i can really appreciate that like um what you'll find is that people who've approached the board and getting out of prison they've done so much reflection and standing in their own stuff that they have no problem with being open about it just because of that work they've done so when myra shares her story she'll be very explicit about her pains her traumas and how she's working to overcome them when I met her, she was just like, yo, I would never just sit across the table from a man. And for whatever reason, whatever energy was in the world, she felt it right to sit down and initially just have tacos with me, just mm-hmm. to talk about like being featured in this project. And during that session, we're eating tacos. I get a phone call from my daughter's mom saying, hey, just talk to your daughter real quick. We're, you know, uh, so I excused myself from the meeting, had that brief conversation, then returned back to Myra. And she saw the interaction that I had with my daughter. And that's what sold her on being involved in this project because she saw how much I cared for a young woman, you know, and she said, okay, she got a sense of who I was as a human being. Each story is powerful and it's kind of own way. And, you know, there are different things that kind of stuck out to me. I think Fahim's story, I thought was really particularly powerful in terms of myself. Once I was released, I always wanted my grandmother to be there, you know. And the commission, she said, uh, Fahim, we thank you for being forthcoming, for telling the truth. She said, when you live your life, live it for your victims. Give it back. And, and since I've been home, I've been on my feet, doing everything I can to be a better man in the society. His commitment to kind of living for his victim, I thought was so powerful, you know, that like, Oh my God, like I I would hope to have that level of accountability in my life 
you know what I'm saying, for having made a mistake and then wanting to push through that. But I just thought it was beautiful to be able to kind of look at that as fuel to move forward with your life. I thought that was really, really powerful. You know, so much of the stories you told were about reentry and kind of anti-recidivism. I'm curious about how you think about like what we as a society should be providing, you know, people who have gone through this experience. This is a story about people. And in looking at these people, it's first provide people with a second chance. And when you say second chance, it's not a second chance while still hanging this kind of scarlet letter over them because of their experiences. It's a second chance at life, facing life yeah. again. And even more so getting to like the tangible resources. What we saw is that example after example of individual who served a mass amount of time in, in returning to society, they heavily lean on their family, their friends, and their significant others. Mm-hmm. If that's the case, then the yeah. state should be providing resources to their family, friends, significant others, and also other former, the incarcerated people, other former lifers. It's interesting how little the empathy goes, you know, or how like the empathy that we could potentially have in this scenario, I think coming from like the state, like, you know, the idea of prison, it feels like uh, at least communicated to us is that it's supposed to rehabilitate. And I'm curious, like how you all think about that idea of rehabilitation, you know, like a lot of, the, again, a lot of the people who chronicle in the story, you know, they, it feels like they found that path forward through, you know, maybe God and religion and use that to transform their thinking. But it, it didn't always necessarily feel like the, the structure itself was providing it for them. How do y'all think about that? Yeah, I mean, I think there there is some confusion around these reforming sentencing laws and, you know, letting people out that just like if a law passes, you know, the floodgates open and, and people come out of prison. You know, everyone in our project had to go before the parole board. Most of them went to the parole board multiple times and got denied before being found suitable. So they they did have to prove, you know, there was that that shift internally. And yeah, it could, it could, that shift could come from religion. Um, I have a feeling that it just comes from time and maturity. You know, Mm -hmm. a lot of, I think everyone in our project committed their offense either as a teenager or at, at oldest early twenties and now have done their time, honest time, real time, 20, 30, 40 years. And, um, they're just not that person anymore as you and I being in our 30s, we're not who we were when we were 17. Yeah. Yeah. They, they talk about coming of age in the prisons, you know, learning to be yeah. a man or a woman in the prisons and kind of aging out of crime or aging out of that lifestyle is for sure a thing. Um, I, I think another catalyst to change is seeing the laws change. When yeah. you see a door open or even like a small crack in the window, you say, oh, okay, I want to get myself in shape so I can squeeze through that opening. And so... A lot of people talked about like seeing some of these Senate bills pass and saying, oh, there's an opportunity for me to get out after being told that I'm going to have to serve life. Well, let me get my stuff together so that I can approach the board and get back out with my family. And to that point, I guess like I think that's why it's so kind of frustrating and maybe even perplexing about how little can be provided after coming out, because, you know, in some cases, this is a huge sea change. You know, like these folks are going through, like you said, the amount of self-reflection required the amount of reconciliation with you know grief anger trauma that that you need to get to a point like this is huge and it's interesting that it feels like the state is mostly just kind of letting people out 
Do y'all wrestle with the kind of the hypocrisy there like me? Or I guess I'm just, yeah, it's just so bizarre. Homelessness is a, is a big issue. You know, um, of our eight participants, no one has ended up homeless, but I, I, that's a couple have come. Um, yeah. it's, it's really tough. The U.S. spends uh, around $80 billion annually on incarceration. So this isn't, to me, this isn't about, you know, raise the taxes or, you know, these people need this or these people. It's just a diversion yeah. away yeah. from that and into, A, communities where these people came from that need resources, health, housing, stability, and then B, towards re-entry because they have to set themselves up with a six-month transitional home. So that uh, is paid for by the state. After that, they need to be, they have to be, or they're homeless, they have to be, you know, fully employed Mm -hmm. and have housing, which housing in California is extremely expensive. But, you know, they somehow figure it out. Uh, they, you know, they leave the prison gates with $200 on a card, a prepaid card. Wow. There are over 75 million monthly Tubi viewers. That's more people than there are in France, which means Tubi is more popular than cigarettes for breakfast. It's more popular than considering iced coffee a total abomination. More popular than loving political revolutions. More popular than mer and mer somehow being different words. Tubi, it's more popular than being French. See you in there. Hear that? It's the call of the Crave. And when the Crave calls, you know what to do. Try the $5 Bacon Bundle. Because the only thing better than a White Castle slider is a White Castle slider topped with crispy hickory smoked bacon. So pick any two of either the Bacon Cheese Slider, 1921 Bacon Cheese Slider, or Chicken Bacon Ranch Slider. And also get a small fry for just $5 with the $5 Bacon Bundle. White Castle. Follow your crave. This is a big year. The Ohio Lottery's golden anniversary. 50 years of excitement, of growing jackpots and crossed fingers. 50 years of funding for schools, of changed lives and brightened days. 50 years of fun, and that is worth celebrating. So watch for can't-miss promotions, huge events, and new games that will make the Ohio Lottery's 50th year its biggest one yet. Learn more at funturns50.com. Life doesn't have a pause button. That's why Capella University's FlexPath learning format lets you set your own deadlines and adjust them if something comes up. Imagine how a flexible education can make a difference for you at capella.edu. Something you said kind of stuck with me and it reminded me of uh, a phrase that kept popping up in the in the pieces, in the essays. You said when they go before the parole board, they're to, to be deemed suitable. The phrase I kept reading that hit me each time I read it was like, you are no longer deemed a threat to society. Just the idea of having to like internalize the idea that my being is a threat to society for that amount of time. I can't imagine something like that. I, I'm curious, like what, from talking to everyone, what you feel like the idea of that does to people over time. Yeah. I mean, and then imagine being deemed a threat to society at 17, 19, you know, 21 years old, right? Before you even really know who you are, before you know what society is. 
see it like that is a question that i didn't ask them explicitly like do do you feel like a threat to society you but i will say that the way some of them spoke about their childhood experiences they framed themselves as somewhat of a menace um and and it wasn't out of a vacuum it wasn't just because they chose that lifestyle it's because of circumstances in their households or things in their community or lack of opportunity and so again this this project although we look at we're specifically looking at lifers returning to society we cover so much it's everything from like childhood psychology to the future of blue collar employment in california to even like california is the second largest incarcerator in this country that incarcerates the most people in the world so what does california say about the rest of this this country and so that question about like do they see themselves as like suitable or were they former menaces i guarantee you all of them even if they said they were at one point would be quick to acknowledge that that didn't just happen in a vacuum it didn't come out of nowhere mm-hmm. absolutely i want to come back to like even just kind of what you said the fact that we're a lot of these folks are being locked up and serving a time or were locked up at a time where they end up serving 20 years when they aren't 20. They're serving longer than they had previously been alive. That is still shocking to hold on to. Just the idea of that, of being so young, being so formative. You know, I, I mean, Penn, we knew each other when we were, you know, roughly the age of where some of these folks made those mistakes. We're completely different people now. It's wild. I'm curious about why you think we struggle maybe as a society to hold empathy for people who have made mistakes. I mean, to be straight up, I've had family members die of gun violence. You know, I've had family members uh, make mistakes and, and be incarcerated. And so it's something even I have wrestled with, you know, at times. But I'm curious, like, what do you think the things are that limit our empathy? And what maybe do we need to do to be able to see, you know, more of the, the humanity in, in the ways that you guys showcase them? Restorative justice is work. It's a lot of work. And it's not just restorative justice being work on the person who's at fault, but also the community who's working to heal this individual. It's mm-hmm. a lot easier just to be tough on crime. Lock people up, throw it a key, whatever, put money toward it and just put them in a box for the rest of their life. Um, but to say, I want to restore this human being, to say that this person has 19 years of childhood trauma that I want to work and exercise out of them with them, it takes a lot of work. And so that dedication yeah. to that work, it kind of goes against the rapid pace society that we live in. Yeah, it's not just a appeal that you take and people are fixed. It takes hmm. time. And so yeah, that time, that effort, that energy is going to take full commitment. And now the other question is who's going to do it? On that note, it, you know, California sees itself as very much kind of progressive in its efforts to, you know, decrease the prison population. You mentioned kind of the laws have been passed that have allowed a lot of the uh, the people who you profile to gain release, you know, but reading these stories clearly gives you the, the limitations of that progressivism, quote unquote. Do you think it's possible to actually truly have like a progressive carceral system? What's the shit that we should be doing differently here? I mean, I think one big point to mention is that incarceration doesn't work as a deterrent. We've yeah. tried tough on crime. It doesn't affect crime levels. You lock someone up for five years, for 30 years. It's just not a good solution. It's not a cost-effective solution, and it's just not in any way a good solution. Like Penn said, it's about pivoting to something which is ultimately going to be harder work. You know, it's easy to put someone in a, in a cell and just throw away the key. That's lazy. 
Yeah. But it, it takes work to restore. Yeah, and then progress. That question, like progress, is uh, it means better than what was before. So I mean, the bar is <laughs> low. Not much. Yeah. <laughs> exactly, the bar is pretty low, man. Like, come on, like, like the the premise of this whole piece is that in 2006, California had so many people in its prisons that it was at nearly 200 percent of what it was designed to occupy. 200 percent to the point. Five years later, the Supreme Court steps in and says, okay, let out enough people so that you're only at 137.5%. Not even like get down to 100% capacity of what you're designed yeah. to do. Like you can still be over capacity, but just by a margin. And they wow. didn't even drop below 137.5 until the pandemic forced their hand. And even when the pandemic hit at the lowest, it was at 102% capacity. So like, and now it's going back up. And now it's going wow. back up, right? And now, yeah, exactly. And we're still in the midst of the pandemic. And now, just I check now out of habit, I check population in California prisons like every week on Wednesdays yeah. because that's when the numbers come out. Is that one hundred and ten percent? Wow. And so, you you see this like progress. This question of progress is like, yeah, yeah, we need something bigger and better than progress. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> something more clear about like a drastic 180, something better yeah. than baby steps. For folks who want to contribute to the something better than baby steps, like if you were advising somebody who who kind of read these pieces and were like, what can I do personally? How, like, what would you say to them? Yeah, I think, I mean, thank you for reading. The first step is in getting informed. Like that's what we right. did first, you know, like take time, read, watch some documentaries. There's, you know, plenty of documentaries and movies and just constant reports. And then find some local organizations that are doing this work and contact them. One of the national organizations we recently talked to is the Sentencing Project, and they're doing some fabulous work. They're based in D.C., but they work all across the nation, and they highlight a lot of legislation that's coming down the pipeline that people can get, can get behind in their local states. And so making sure that that's on your radar as well. And then the lowest thing that you can do is when you encounter somebody who's formerly incarcerated, treat them like a human. Just be like, you know, there's an example of uh, Trey Viel going to the DMV and him just essentially breaking down to the person working at the DMV and being like, look, I just got a prison. Work with me. Please just lend me some patience. And the lady's like, it's all good, baby. Welcome home. Yeah. And he, he tells us that of like, th that's not a parole agent. That's not like an advocate. That's not a freedom fighter. That's somebody yeah. at their job. Just looking at him being like, oh, it's all right, baby. I understand you've been through some stuff. Welcome home. That is what people should do. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. I want to come back a little bit to you, Penn. I know you mentioned you've done work in the prison system before. And, you know, it, it seems like this project is, is really personal for you. Like, can you talk a bit more about, like, what you brought to it, you know, that, that might have drove kind of the energy there? Yeah, I mean, uh, growing up in Oakland, black community in Oakland, of course, I know, like, when I was a kid, I knew people in and out of CYA. And then as I grew up, uh, my father was in and out of incarceration between Ohio and Alabama. And so at 25, I went to go see him for the first time as an adult in a prison in Alabama and kind of wrapped my mind around the personal impact of the justice system on me and my family. And then as I grew as a journalist, I've done work um, both inside of San Quentin News, uh, working with the news organization there and other arts organizations inside of San Quentin, as well as teaching writing at the California Medical Facility in Vacaville which is um, a, a different kind of prison where they work with people who've had mental health issues as well. And so, you know, seeing it firsthand, it really drives it home. Of like, this isn't just a story. This is something yeah. we're at ground zero on. Being here in California, in the communities that we're in, this is something that directly impacts us. And because of that, 
I saw the earnest need to produce this story. And it also, it weighed on me a lot, you know? I got, writing is a very lonely thing. And so to hear Tate over and over again about how somebody committed murder or was raped or is struggling with returning to society, it causes me to like take breaks and go for walks and like get fresh air because my mental health is then impacted because I know how important this story is as well. To that end, like Brandon, I'm curious, like, how has this changed you? You know, I feel like you can't, you know, look for these scenes that you shot without being affected by the stories, by the people, by the experience. Like, how's doing this particular project changed you? The goal of the project is is a perspective shift. And I think through making the work also experienced, you know, personally, a perspective shift simply by just getting to know these people on, a, on an intimate, personal level and getting to know about their childhood about, you know, what informs some of their decisions and just getting that that kind of like larger context of which I, I you know, I didn't really know previously. Honestly, I, I appreciate you sharing that because I feel like that was so important. And it, it's the thing that comes through so clearly when you're reading the pieces and consuming the media, like it forces you to engage. And I think that like that empathy work that, that you both have been talking about is so important, which is why I really feel like, you know, projects like this are so important. You know, I really want to say like, Thank you to the two of you for like the, the investment here, because I think that, like you said, it was how we get to those those bigger changes, how we get to a, a system that's more than just a little bit better. So, you know, thank you to the two of you. Thank you. Thank you. Can I wait? Can I get one? Yeah. Yeah. Eric, when you saw the piece, like what what was your initial response? I was honestly, I was just like, I was kind of like, fuck, <laughs> you know, like I especially I just moved to L.A., you know. And uh, I just moved to California and so much of that move, I'll be honest, has been revelatory in, po- in a positive way. Uh, and, you know, for the comfort that I've experienced, I just got kind of jaded by my experiences in New York after a little while. And I think you can get lost in that comfort sometimes. And, you know, I'm someone who tries to stay close to what's happening, you know, with with us, the big us. And. So like I stumbled across the piece on, I think on Twitter, clicked the link and couldn't stop, you know, because it was a reminder of just the people around me, the people around me who you have conversations with and you don't know their story and you see them as people. And literally, as soon as I, as soon as I got a chance to uh, read it, I think I read Traviel's story first, but, uh, but it, it hit me and I, you know, I sent it to Brittany and Alexis and I was just like, we got to talk more about this, man. Like, it's not that the comfort is a problem, but I think it's important to remember that that, you know, can come at a cost for other people. And if you remember that, you can remember those small moments that you described of when to be aware, you know, and when when maybe to act. And so I thought it was just such a kind of beautiful, loving reminder of those things and, you know, a, a propulsion for like, hey, you know, continue to learn some shit and, con- and continue to make connections because people could use it. Bingo. Thank you. Thank you. I just, you never know. You put something out into the world, you never know how it's going to be received, you know? I, it is my pleasure to give you that reflection, man. I really, I really appreciate that. You know, we, we do this show to try to highlight, you know, what we see out there that's like complicated and, 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 and beautiful and pushing us forward. I think that what the work that you, two of you have done has definitely accomplished that. So seriously, it's a pleasure to have you on the show today just real quick where can people find your work like share where people can uh find more from you or what comes next yeah so the whole project is at www.facing.life 
can find my work on my website, brandontalzik.com. Hopefully we'll put a link to it on the page because my last name is really difficult to spell. And then, yeah, Penn and I are both on, on social media. You can find us on there. Yeah, yeah, you can find my work definitely at facing.life as well as on social media, OG Penn. That's O-G-P-E-N-N. And that's on Twitter and Instagram. That's where I usually throw all my stuff. So I promised at the top of the show that there would be a big announcement about my co-host, Eric Eddings. And here it is. Okay, so these past few weeks, you all may have noticed that Eric hasn't really been on the show outside of today. And that is because he is on paternity leave. He and his wife just welcomed a new baby to the family and they are enjoying their time together so, so much. But don't worry, Eric will be back at the end of the summer to rejoin me on For Colored Nerds. In the meantime, though, please join me in wishing him and his family all the best. For Colored Nerds was created by me, Eric Eddings, and Brittany Luce. It's supported by a production team at Stitcher, including producer Alexis Williams, story editor Gianna Palmer, social producer Elise Ellis, and engineer Marcus Hamm. Our theme music is by Willie Green. And look, y'all, we love hearing from you so, so much. So please shout us out on Instagram at For Colored Nerds, on Twitter at For Colored Nerds. You can find us everywhere at For Colored Nerds. And tell your friends, too, We love it also when we're like, yo, my homie, cousin, best friend told me to listen to this episode and it was bomb. And then I subscribed. That's like my favorite song. So please do your do your friend, do your community a favor and share an episode and tell us which one it was. Not everything in life is flexible, but at Capella University, your education can be. With our game-changing FlexPath learning format, you're empowered to fit education into your life without putting other priorities on hold. FlexPath lets you set your own deadlines and adjust them when needed. You can take courses at your own speed and move on to the next one when you're ready. Imagine how a flexible education can make a difference in your life at capella.edu.